0: Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're about to have a conversation now with Julie DeYoung, who is spokesperson for Purdue Farms and, of course, our coverage here of Purdue's announcement reforming its chicken welfare policies, as was put by Lorraine Mirabella in her Sun column. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, also be talking later on with Scott Edwards from Food and Water Watch and with Ian Cullgren from The Politico, who wrote a really good story on this. Uh, And now we're here with Julie. And Julie, welcome. Good to have you with us.
1: Thanks, So I appreciate you having me.
0: So this is fascinating. So talk a bit about the background to why Purdue has decided to do things like uh, give the chickens more space and open up uh, windows and bring more light in and have places for people to people, chickens, (laughs) to roost and jump up to talk. And and we'll get into the other details as well. But talk about the history of this from your perspective.
1: Sure. Yeah, well, it really started, you know, gosh, probably five years ago or more. Um, It it began as part of our uh, reduction in antibiotic use, which I think we've talked about before. And part of the learnings as we looked to figure out how we could raise chickens with fewer and now no antibiotics we found that we needed to look more closely at how the chickens were raised, the the environment in the houses, the management, um, and that there were going to need to be some changes there to allow us to be successful without antibiotics. And so that was kind of the starting point. Um, you know, we started that whole process back in 2002, um, and we didn't we didn't tell anybody about it until 2014, so 12 years later. So. We're trying to be a little bit more proactive this time around and start talking about it after maybe five years instead of 12. <laughs> so, um, but also um, we, have, we made a couple of acquisitions um, in the interim that we're learning from and are applying to the business, and that's been part of the motivation as well. So we acquired uh, Coleman Natural in 2011, and that got us into organic chickens. Um, most folks don't realize that Purdue is now the largest producer of organic chickens in the U.S., as well as the largest producer of no antibiotics ever. Um, and what we, what we saw got into the organic chicken production was that there were we expected maybe less productivity, less efficiency, um, but that wasn't necessarily the case. And we saw some things that we thought we could transfer to the rest of our business. So things like windows, more space, enrichments. Um, and so that got us really thinking and studying more about these alternative ways to raise chickens. Um, and then we acquired Nyman Ranch uh, a couple years ago. They've got fabulous relationships with the farmers, and those learnings, you know, coupled with a couple of, you know, some of the high-profile criticisms that we that we've received from um, activist groups and some and some farmers really causes us to, to pause and say, you know, we've, we've probably overlooked or gotten away from focusing as much as we should on the farmer part of the equation here. Um, so that and plus um, our folks are traveling to Europe and studying what's going on there and looking again at alternative ways. And, and that's all kind of informed this plan that we rolled out on Monday, uh, call it kind of a, we're calling it a recommitment to animal care. Um, and we think it's uh, it's comprehensive because it goes really even beyond the animals. So it's a four-part plan. One part of it is animal care, and that's certainly a very important part of it. The second part is around farmer relationships and recognizing that we need to strengthen those and that we aren't going to be successful if the farmers aren't integr- integrally involved in that as well. And then the other two parts are committing to be transparent about it talking about it maybe before we've got everything right (laughs) but hoping that people will recognize that we're on a journey and um, and we want people to you know to to watch it along with us as as we learn and then the last part is um, what we call a forever initiative so it's not a one-year program or a five-year program it's something we anticipate working on really forever so back to continuous improvement continuing to learn continuing to evolve
0: so two quick questions before we have to go. One is, um, what was the process of getting the Humane Society and Mercy for Animals involved with Purdue? Some people have argued, I've seen that it's because of what happened in North Carolina with a video that came out. What is the story?
1: Well, those groups certainly reached out to us. um uh, to World Farming was another um, after either working with growers that, um, where there were issues or growers that um, were unhappy with the current situation. Sure. And unlike in the past where, you know, we didn't feel maybe they, we had enough common ground um, to, to be worth sitting down, we, we went ahead and sat down with them and, and showed them what we were doing. So they were presenting us with sort of a list of what they wanted to see us do. And we looked at that and said, you know what, we're already working on some of this stuff. So we we did sit down with them and, and showed them, look, here's what we're already doing. Here's, you know, here's the things that we're planning to work on. And what we heard back from them was that, you know, one, they and nobody else knew that we were doing these things because we hadn't been telling anybody about it. And they really encouraged us to be more public about it. Um, they, of course, had their own feedback and, you know, requests of, of additional things that they would like to see or... More specific timelines or commitments in there, um, and we're and we're listening, you know, to that, um, and we'll look to incorporate more of that as we learn more and have a higher confidence level that we can deliver against those commitments.
0: So, and the, what about the cost? I mean, there's the, the argument. that Some articles have been talked to, not argument, but they've raised Purdue is paying for this upfront now, but in long term, you have to negotiate costs with farmers. How that, how's that going to work?
1: Well, the um, of the things that we've been talking about, probably the highest ticket item is not on the farm. It's the uh, installation of controlled atmosphere, sunning systems, and the harvesting plant. So that's those are expenses. That requires quite a bit of reworking of the facility. So that's going to be, you know, that will be capital investment that we're going to have to phase in over time. Um, the initial right now we're talking about putting – we're not talking, we're actually doing, we're putting windows in 200 houses. That'll be done by the end of this year. And we're doing those in different geographic areas so we can better study the effect of windows under different climate conditions. We're, we're committed to paying for that. Um, and I think our overall commitment is that the farmers will be made whole regardless. So whether that's us paying for it, whether that's, compensating them with a premium, I mean, those details we're going to figure out as we go along, but um, our intention is that, you know, the farmers, farmers will be, will remain whole um, through this process.
0: Well, Julie DeYoung, it's always a pleasure to have you on the, on the Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner show, uh, uh, spokesman for Purdue Farms. I, I, I deeply appreciate uh, you joining us and also uh, where Purdue is really resting to go, so thank you so much.
1: You're
0: very welcome, Mark. Uh, We are going to continue our look at the announcement Purdue made um, about uh, raising their chickens in a more environmentally friendly way uh, and what that means. We're about to talk to Ian Cullgren, who uh, writes for Politico. He's a pro-agriculture reporter uh, and wrote an interesting piece on this very thing on the announcement that Purdue made. Uh, And, Ian, welcome to the show. Good to have you with us.
2: Good to be here, Mark. Thanks.
0: So it's interesting. Uh, this is a major announcement, and clearly what went on before with Purdue and the video in North Carolina and Mercy for Animals and other groups kind of pushing the issue and then working with Purdue uh, kind of brought much of this about. But for just as you look at this industry, what is the significance of what, of what Purdue announced?
2: Well, this, this you're right, Mark. This is definitely a big deal. Purdue for a while now has been trying to seize and maintain the high ground on animal welfare issues. Over the past decade, they've gone uh, entirely antibiotic-free or antibiotic-free in the sense of prevention and giving antibiotics and masks, which is something that's got them a lot of, of credit with, with animal rights groups, with other, other health groups, and I guess you could say foodie-type groups. And now this is really the next step that they see as just as significant. And when you look at the scope of the industry and that they're the fourth largest chicken producer in the country, certainly by the numbers, it's a big deal too.
0: So what is it? What is it what do you, well, two things. I mean, A, um, what do you think this will mean for the industry? I mean, Tyson and the others are huge. I mean, they may be maybe the fourth, but they're not Tyson in terms of size, right? Um, and so how do you think this will affect the industry?
2: You're right. Well, you know, it's a little hard to say at this point how exactly it's going to affect the industry. I think what we need to look for, and what I think a lot of that will depend on, is whether buyers, mass buyers of chicken, get on board and start, you know, demanding some of these better conditions for broiler chickens the same way they have for egg-laying chickens. If you have something similar uh, happen as what happened with the cage-free movement where McDonald's and, you know, within a matter of months, hundreds of companies were saying they would only buy cage-free eggs. If you have that kind of weight and that kind of buying power get on board, then I think definitely things would move quickly with, uh, with the other companies. But it's just a little bit difficult to say at this point whether uh, Purdue's shift will spark uh, more demand from some of those big, big players i mean it's
0: interesting we 're not we 're not talking about purdue turning to over to free range chickens, but <laughs> no we're <laughs> not so, but we are talking about they making more room for birds to perch and to run for the windows to be put into these houses uh that they have um and issues like that and 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 even kind of looking at their um, the, the, how they genetically modify things and maybe re rethinking what they do there i mean these are so these are these are issues clearly that they're responding to a market. And it says a lot about where the market's going
2: i I think you're right about that i mean we we have seen over the past few months and years an increased demand for you know just better better uh maintained for food and sourced food and I think we're seeing that play out with some of the uh discussions that are happening right now about uh you know or organic uh organic chickens and uh, what constitutes an organic chicken and so forth. So these are, these are definitely big changes, yes. Um, and, but they certainly won't happen overnight. Um, these are going to be very expensive changes for farmers, and some farmers groups are worried about how much, how much it's going to cost to do some of these things. When you think about adding more space per bird and putting in windows, I mean, these are big, big upgrades that cost a lot of money and are going to take time to do.
0: S- therein lies part of the rub. So th- the question always has been, and between some farmers and, and Purdue and other companies, is who pays for these? I mean, the farmers have to take out these huge loans to build the houses in the first place and for all the equipment. So right now, Purdue saying it's paying at least for the beginning of this, 200 chicken houses, maybe 2,000. But there's, there's no clear idea now who's actually going to ultimately pay for all of this, right?
2: That's true. There is no clear idea who's going to ultimately pay for this. Purdue, when I talked to some of the executives on Monday, they did mention an idea that they have that's really going to be a linchpin in this, which would be to modify the tournament contract system that is really the the staple of, of the chicken industry to include some incentives. question I think and that other groups have raised is whether those incentives will be enough to actually cover the cost for the farmers and whether farmers will still be on the hook at the end of the day.
0: Because it's very likely as this washes out that the farmers will have to probably pick up some of this burden and probably go – and probably have to, 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 to redo their houses. I mean that's just been the nature in the past. We'll see if this changes at all. They're also talking about changing the way they slaughter chickens.
2: They are talking about the way, uh, changing the way that chickens are slaughtered. They're changing to a new method that essentially involves putting the chickens to sleep before they even enter the slaughterhouse. And that's very different than right now where the current practice is chickens are, are lifted and shackled by their feet um, while they're still very much conscious in the slaughterhouses. And then they're stunned and their throats are split and they're put through a, a hot bath of water. Um, pretty gory system, and it's certainly, you know, any slaughtering system is, is going to be violent, but this, uh, they say, will be better for workers as well, because they'll be easier to, it'll be easier for them to handle the birds, there will be fewer in, injuries, and it will be, you know, overall, they think, more humane for the chickens, and that part has, gotten some praise from the humane Society and other groups are very interested in, in animal welfare.
0: Well, I, I'm really fascinated to see how this folds out. We've been covering Purdue and the chicken industry with some intensity over these last several years, a bunch of years, uh, on our program here, Sound Bites. And so uh, we'll see if you're the guy you interviewed, Josh Balk, uh, Senior Director for Food Policy at Humane Society. is right when he said you quote him in your article saying, we're going to see instead of an arms race, a wings race. And this <laughs> yes. Purdue is far ahead.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. I mean... Purdue certainly, when, when you look at Purdue, when you compare Purdue to other companies like Sanderson Farms and Tyson, they certainly are making some bigger steps to address some of these issues than those other companies. Here you've got Purdue, for example, 10 years into an effort to rid antibiotics as much as possible from its flocks. And Sanderson Farms, meanwhile, is still saying we don't believe there's any direct connection between antibiotics. And uh, antibiotic resistance. So, they, they, Purdue has certainly been quicker to embrace some of these issues that consumers are increasingly caring about uh, than other companies.
0: See, Ian Culligan has been with us here. He is uh, the pro ag reporter for uh, Politico. I will be showing you his article on our website at SteinerShow.org. Ian, thanks for the work you do, and I appreciate you taking the time with the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites today.
2: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: We're about to talk to Scott Edwards, who is co-director of uh, Food and Water Justice at Food and Water Watch. Scott, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Mark. Good afternoon. So this this seems, uh, on the face of it, from the, to to be a pretty wide-ranging change and pretty dramatic change for Purdue in terms of bringing light, having more room for chickens, and places where in the move and. And pulling back from from some of the ways they've been raising chickens and challenging their own genetic research. Well, so, what's your take on this?
3: Yeah, no. I listen. I certainly think that that it, it, it's a welcome step in in the right direction for this industry. Um, and you know, all, all the all the devil is certainly in the details. But but from what indications we're seeing and some of the things that you've mentioned in, in improving um, the, the conditions inside the poultry houses, perhaps. Uh, um, not um overgrowing the birds at such a rapid rate um all, all those kinds of things but there's certainly a a, a a direction this industry needs to move in um they need to do a lot more um and and it's aimed at you know as you said animal welfare there are certainly um lots of other issues uh, about the industry that also need to be addressed um but you know listen i i i um i i, I think it is it's a good move. And I'm glad Purdue's doing it, and um, I hope that other integrators follow suit.
0: Well, the Craig Watts, who's a farmer in North Carolina, um, who could not join us today, but we'll be talking to in the coming weeks, um, was one of those farmers that contracted Purdue and then released this video. And many people say it's his video that released, uh, looking at the conditions in the chicken houses that unleashed this kind of this This change and kind of pushed it because of what they saw, so I mean so I, what questions do you have around that
3: well you know i I think that that what what purdue has done here is is they've identified an opportunity um I think you can even see in some of these articles discussion about uh and, and this has happened with with antibiotics in the past um you know in, in terms of pure size and and volume of production purdue's not gonna not gonna to uh compete with, with a company like Tyson. So what, what Purdue is doing, I think, is is they're identifying a niche. They're, they're I think, being very wise in, in recognizing that um, consumers are being – and through things like what happened with Craig Watts, but even other, other stories and, and information that's out there. There are a lot of groups out there. There are a lot of advocates out there who are talking about this industry in ways that it hasn't been spoken of before. Um, there's increased transparency. There's, there's increased attention to, to what some of the many faults of this industry are. And I think Purdue seeing that and, and seeing that, that when folks go to the market now, this is in their mind. And um, and they've talked about how they want to move into humanely raised or the organic market, and they realize that they can charge more for for chicken if they do these kinds of things. So I think it's very much... Uh, a, a market decision that they can do these things and and market themselves into a, an increasingly aware consumer base that they are the better poultry company, um, sell their product for more money, not really impact their bottom line profit margin, um, and 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 have that as sort of a, a, a niche market for themselves.
0: Yeah, it was interesting that that the the way this came about. I mean, with with the uh, with the L.A. based group Mercy for Animals that. Uh, was deeply involved in that video that came out of North Carolina actually helped mm-hmm. them develop this plan but the, there's also devils and details we'll talk about later on in this program which have to do with who actually pays for this right. uh, um a producer they're paying for it now but the long term uh, they also made comments about that that will help growers finance it right
3: yeah that that's an important point uh, you know we we um one of one of the big criticisms of this industry ongoing criticisms of this industry and and this was uh, covered in, in legislation that we proposed in Maryland, the Farmers' Rights Act last year, um, is is the entire financing structure of this industry, whereby the integrators reap all the economic benefits of, of this massive poultry production system. But it's contract growers who have to foot the real financial burden of, of taking out loans, building these poultry houses. And, and one of the, the big Big impacts on on these contract growers has been this need to constantly upgrade poultry houses with ventilation systems and water systems and all these other kinds of mandates that the integrators place on them, and it keeps them in this constant cycle of of debt. So, you know, I was I was a little surprised to see Purdue and some of them get depressed. The and again, who knows how this will all play out? Um, that when they when they talk about changes to the poultry houses, putting in windows or putting in Bales of hay or other things within the poultry houses um, that they would cover the cost. Um, that's not been the pattern in this industry, and, and and from our perspective, they should be covering the cost of all of poultry house upgrades and improvements. Um, it, they're the ones who get the benefit from from these things, not not the contract growers.
0: So, how does this affect the the strategy that you have? Before as we wind down here, the Food and Water Watch's strategy with the uh, Farmers' Rights Act. And Maryland, and what you can, are going to pursue or not continue to pursue?
3: Well, so so the Farmers' Rights Act contained lots of provisions that aren't addressed by what Purdue is, is proposing. Um, and again, one one of those goes to what I was just talking about. So, um, although Purdue is, is is suggesting that it may cover the cost of putting windows in these facilities, the 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 big upgrade costs, you know, ventilation systems, and and those kinds of of um, uh, technology um, aren't covered and so that, that's where these contract growers are still going into massive amounts of debt so um that that doesn't change um, and, and again in our, in our bill we weren't saying that even the integrators had to cover those costs we were simply saying that if contract growers were forced to upgrade poultry houses through a mandate from an integrator and then the integrator cuts off their contract for no reason then the contract grower needs to be protected by the integrator. So that doesn't change. A lot of our, our bill was about just basic rights of, of association with, with groups and with growing groups and the ability to speak out about their experience as contract growers. So none of, none of what Purdue is suggesting here changes a lot of the inequities in the contract grower-integrator relationship. This is more about animal welfare. And, and again, it's a great, great thing. We need to improve animal welfare, but it doesn't really go to contract equity. It doesn't really go to the, the, the massive amounts of pollution that are being generated by the industry and, and stockpiled and irresponsibly disposed of. So there, there's still a lot of issues here.
0: It's always good to talk to you, Scott Edwards, and we'll continue and we'll look at this in depth as we go through these coming weeks and see where this leads. Uh, Scott Edwards is co-director of Food and Water Justice at Food and Water Watch. And, Scott, once again, thank you so much for taking your time with our listeners.
3: Thanks so much, Mark. Good talk to you.
0: Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. and You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. Here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're about to have a conversation with Jenny Zhao, who is a reporting fellow, reporting fellow, for the Center for Public Integrity's environment and labor team who just wrote this article in Grist. Uh, it really, a very intense and deep article in Grist. Uh, fracking produces tons of radioactive waste. What should we do with it? And Jenny, welcome. Good to have you with us.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, the first question is, you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, fracking and the issues built around fracking. As a matter of fact, we're here in the state of Maryland where... <coughs> the moratorium ends next year.
4: Right, right.
0: And uh, that battle is going to be renewed. And one of the things we don't talk about in all that is what you're writing about here. We've talked about all the waste and, and what happens to drinking water and, 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 and the rest. But nobody has really thought about the radioactive waste or even knew there was radioactive waste. Most folks don't. Ra- Right.
4: Right. Exactly. I it was news to me when I found out, too. Um, And and I think you're right. I I think a lot of people aren't really thinking about garbage uh, when they're thinking about fracking. As you mentioned, there's a lot of sort of water concerns. You have the EPA study with the uh, potential water contamination. um, But you don't see as much sort of conversation happening over the tons and tons of solid uh, waste that uh, results from this fracking process.
0: So, so it's just what is this we're looking at here? I mean, it seems to me that from what you've written, <clears throat> this is across multi states. You spent a lot of time in West Virginia, of course, but through a, a lot of states. Um, and the, 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 while we know about the other waste the, that was reported from, from, uh, from this shale exploration for gas, the sand, the chemicals that are pumped in, and all the stuff that comes right. out of that. Uh, the brine, the sludge, rock, and soil equipment, as you talked about, that you wrote about. What 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 is the nature of the radio, radio, radioactive waste? Where does it come sure. from?
4: Right, right. That's a great question. I mean, I think when people think about. A drilling, uh, with fracking you're, you're drilling often thousands and thousands of feet um, and you're, you're essentially tapping into this really tight rock that's why it's called hydraulic fracturing is that you're usually injecting sand and a bunch of these chemicals deep underground while as you're drilling you're unearthing all of these natural materials, soil, rock, uh, dirt, all these types of things and they're all sort of naturally radioactive so any soil or rock that you actually come across there's some radioactivity connected to that. What happens when you add hydraulic fracturing to the mix is that it becomes what's known as technologically enhanced, naturally occurring radioactive material. It's a, it's a mouthful. It's called T-Norm. And uh, what it is is it concentrates in radioactivity. Um, so you're getting back these waste products that uh, are higher radioactivity than you would have just, you know, uh, digging up some soil in your backyard for a vegetable garden or something like that. Um, so, and, and um, you know, as I mentioned in the story, it's all sorts of waste products here, uh, all the way from the dirt that you are uh, digging into, uh, all the way from the equipment that you're using to sort of separate out all the liquid and the solid products that you're getting from this fracking process.
0: So so <clears> the <throat> interesting here, scientifically, it seems, is that is that it's the – it's when you break open these rocks, it's what's left behind, creating this – where they kind of almost meld. One of the theories is this, create this radioactive waste from different rocks. And they begin to – that's when they begin to form – that's when it becomes – could possibly be dangerous. Is that right?
4: Yeah. I mean it, any sort of radioactive material could be potentially dangerous. It's, it's the type of – of uh, radioactivity and and um, you know how long it is and when we're talking about radioactivity from fracking uh, the most common isotope uh, would be radium 226 um, and there's also radium 228 but the what what it means is that it it has a long sort of persistence has a long half-life which means it would take millennia of, you know it would be radioactive over the course of several millennia um and when you think about this this stuff is getting sent to landfills and when i mean landfills it's the same sort of landfills that are taking your household trash um and and landfills typically you know no one really thinks about them more than maybe 30 50 100 years out into the future not not millennia um, so there is an issue there of, you know, what we're doing with the waste now raises a lot of questions about the long-term health aspects of it. And uh, the main issues with radium is that it uh, decays down into radon, which is uh, the gas that can be found in a lot of basements and a lot of buildings and um, is carcinogenic.
0: So it seems to me one of the overwhelming, overwhelming issues here is that there is no national regulation of fracking, so everything is left to the right. states, Right.
4: Right, right. It's, it's just kind of done in this piecemeal fashion. Um, so, for instance, there's no one federal agency that fully regulates all of the waste products from fracking. You have, you know, EPA uh, looks over some of the liquid waste. And as we've seen with the injection wells that was recently uh, tied to uh, human-induced earthquakes, kind of the seismic activity we've been hearing about in some of these states that are being heavily uh, fractured. Um, and then you don't really get as a, a sort of a coordinated, all-encompassing uh, set of regulations over how to handle this waste, whether or not you even track it, and how you're supposed to dispose of it. So, the reason why this story looked at multiple states is because this waste is moving around uh, across state borders. Um, and I, I say that for the waste that is being tracked. There's a large proportion of this waste that kind of just uh, goes out into there, no one really knows where it ends up. And uh, so much of this is self reported by companies. Um, that it becomes very difficult to track. Pennsylvania um, has been trying to track some of these loads and been having sort of limited success with that. Um, and this is as recently as for twenty fifteen only. Um, so it's been very difficult for the state to kind of have a handle on this.
0: Well, I mean, it, it's it's it, there's no real research going on other than the research being done outside. There's no st- state sanctioned research that's going into depth about any of this. Isn't that? Right?
4: Some. Pennsylvania did do what what is uh, a, a pretty big sort of comprehensive research where they actually took some samples and they did some modeling. And um, I believe the report was a couple hundred pages. And, and a lot of the states uh, kind of said, you know, we're, we're going to see whether or not this is something we should be concerned about following the Pennsylvania study. Um, so Pennsylvania did do one of the more, I guess, comprehensive studies about this. What was interesting about that particular study is a lot of... Uh, environmental activists and some health experts have raised some questions with that study because they didn't, they didn't, according to a lot of these activists, they didn't collect enough sort of data to make the uh, conclusions that they came across. And the the study itself uh, kind of cautioned that uh, that there needs to be much more research to be done. That there's still very much in the infancy of, of figuring out what to do with all this. And of course, uh, that report. Uh, Try to say some things about whether or not it was going to have any health effects for the people who handle this waste, so people at landfills, people who are in the trucks driving, uh, dr- driving th- these loads. Um, and they didn't really—they did that based on modeling, which is you know kind of like a prediction and an estimate. Um, So it's it's still very early on in the process, and you see some states starting to really be concerned about this, starting to to throw some research into it, but it's very expensive, um, very difficult, and then, of course, you need uh, people with the scientific expertise, and that's not typically been uh, with the people who are employed at the state. Uh, For the Pennsylvania report, they actually went and used a private contractor to help them uh, draft that report
0: but you you alluded to one not alluded you talked about one report in here that um, um, that the, the problem was that they said there was no danger when it came out of it, but that right. report was written by people who are associated with the companies
4: yeah, yeah that that would be the the Pennsylvania uh, report was actually uh, i guess co-authored or or they had a contract out with a a private contractor that is actually a nuclear waste. Uh, type company. Um, It's a company that Pennsylvania's Department of Environmental Protection has actually used for a very, very long time, for several years. And it ends up being the same company that's actually helping them monitor the situation at landfills. Um, So there were some questions raised by uh, some groups, including uh, uh, the Riverkeeper group, Delaware Riverkeeper, um, about whether or not that was appropriate to have uh, that contractor uh, Arthur that report when they were already kind of getting business from that particular state because if there were any problems, I mean, you know, it, it, it would be the same company that's kind of been handling the situation for the state for many years or working with the state on that particular issue for many years. So there was some sort of criticism on that. But again, regardless of who ends up doing these reports, there's the consensus that that there just hasn't been enough research on what's happening with all this stuff. It's, it's it's kind of like a black hole type situation. I I went and asked for a lot of these records, and I found out that a lot of these agencies were not really looking over these records. Uh, so there was the question of um, even, if, even when there's regulation, what's the enforcement behind it? What's the tracking behind it? And often I, I walked away with a lot more questions than answers.
0: So, what is it that we do not know that we need to know when it comes to the question of, of fracking and uh, um, and the radioactive waste? And what is it that we just don't well, know?
4: We we don't know a lot of basic things. We don't know, for for instance, how much is actually being produced. Uh, only one state out of the four that I looked at—I looked at Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New York—only one state, that would be Pennsylvania, actually asks um people who operate the companies who operate well pads to voluntarily sort of report how much waste they're producing and 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 those are estimates right um so only one state actually has even a a ballpark figure of of how much waste we're talking about here the other states that i looked at it's kind of you know if you want a reporter you don't want to report um, and so that can be a big problem because we're not even sure of the scale, um, because of how many wells have been that, that have been, you know, um, drilled, you can kind of get kind of a ballpark, but like I said, each, each well could vary, uh, how deep you, you drill and all these types of things. So the basic question of how much of it, it is where it's going and where it's, Finally being disposed of, I mean I, we really can't answer any of those questions
0: so what what we're saying is we do not, we don't understand what this radioactive waste byproduct is doing once its it, once it is exposed in the fracking process, and we don't know where it is where it's being dumped in dumps. Right. Uh, and and where those dumps are or how much is in those dumps. We know none of exactly,
4: that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it, it becomes very, very difficult to track all this. And, for example, um, we worked with the Ohio Valley Resource, which is a, a new radio consortium that covers Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. And Kentucky right now is in the middle of multiple pending state-led investigations trying to figure out how the Fracking radioactive waste that was pretty high in radioactivity um, ended up in some Kentucky landfills where it's illegal to actually dump uh, that stuff. And they're just kind of going, working backwards to try to figure out how this went into two of their uh, landfills. And, um, you know, it's much harder to track something kind of once everything has happened. Um, and it's, it's also very difficult because a lot of the landfills across the country, it's you don't have what's called these radiation monitors. So when you're taking in this waste, you're kind of taking uh, whatever that person or that company has said the waste is um, on its face value. You know, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between fracking waste and normal dirt can't, or me. some other kind of sludge.
0: You, you can't tell the difference?
4: I can't tell the difference. I don't know if you can. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, yeah, it's a lot of trust, I guess, uh, built into the situation.
0: Well, this is a, this really is a great uh, report, and I, I uh, appreciate the work you've done and the Gris for putting it out in the Center for Public Integrity as well. Uh, Jenny Zhao is, is a reporting fellow for the Center for Public Integrity uh, on the Environment and Labor team, has written this incredible report. We will link to fracking produces tons of radioactive waste. What should we do with it? And uh, thank you so much, Jenny, for your time.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: We're about to hear a segment produced by Baltimore Sound Society for The Mark Steiner Show. Baltimore Sound Society is a student audio and storytelling collective that came out of UMBC. I'm Adam Jornberg with the Baltimore Sound Society, and I'm
5: joined by Calvin. Calvin, where are we?
6: We are right now at the Lexington Market, and we are about to step into a food justice forum that was started by the group Bolty Market as well as the Baltimore Food Justice Committee. Cool. Let's get in there. So the first thing that we did when we got to this event was we sat down at this round table conversation that community members were having.
5: Yeah, and they were talking about how to be food justice activists in the city of Baltimore, and they were kind of discussing access to food in regards to transportation and their community gardens, things of that nature.
7: You know, so it's. I think they say somewhere in here, it's like the food desert map is like a starting point for these kind of conversations. But it's also important just to think about what is everyone's personal experience um, with food access, so that, depending on where they live, right? So it's that definition you know, really
3: actually refers to a community, not yeah. to an individual. Um, so
6: one thing that's really important, I think, when we talk about food deserts, is to actually define them. And this is all in total. These are three points that need to be met in order for a uh, area to be a food desert. Okay, so number one? Number one is a supermarket or alternative that provides fresh produce of some sort is more than a quarter of a mile away. The medium household income is at or below 185% of the federal poverty level. And that's number two? That's number two. And then over 30% of the households have no vehicle available. And that's number three? Yes, so if all of those are met, as well as the average healthy food availability index score for the stores, which is basically the healthy food they provide.
2: Just this factor of, like, like access. So, you know, if you look at this portion of the map up here where there's no, like, where there's no food desert, there's a supermarket, but, you know, there's a portion over here where there's, there's no food desert, and there's, like, a community garden. But I, I wonder, like, the access to that community garden. Like, who, who is able to get a plot or who can farm there? And then the other thing, too, is, like, you know, generally community gardens only operate in the summertime. So you're only getting fresh produce, like, spring, maybe spring, maybe fall, but mostly summer. And so, like, those are two things.
8: West Baltimore, you might have blocks that are just empty, you know? Um, and that could be a, a place where community gardens might be a better and more feasible solution mm-hmm. than if you have a food desert where you have, you know, three apartment buildings on one block, you know, something like that.
6: And even that, even if it's not at their specific house, how far away yeah. is it to get to a place where there is open space? Mm-hmm. Or could there be open space if we would just take care of that blighted block where nobody is living anymore?
5: Uh, Can I get everybody's name real quick?
8: I'm Erin Beal.
5: Tommy.
1: Mary.
6: Ruth.
3: Damien.
5: Mike. Nia. The activities that they were doing were punctuated by these, I don't want to call them lectures, but what would you call them?
6: More of an open discussion because it wasn't just strictly... It wasn't somebody talking to. No, it wasn't just talking to. It was talking with everyone because it was all about being a community discussion. It wasn't about being like lectured to or talked to. It was specifically about incorporating the community's voice into this discussion of community and food access. Yes,
5: yeah, so it was like this back and forth from the activities and the small group discussions into the large group discussions.
3: So there's a lot of things that you can find, and we have some resources to help you find them, different groups that are thinking about these issues, Um, nutrition and cooking classes. There's a lot of great things going on in this city, Um, and information is power. So
6: look into those, and that's basically it. So any questions? Any thoughts? Any criticism?
5: So we talked to a woman, Laura... Laura Flam. Okay.
6: Yeah. We talked to Laura Flam about the food desert map that they provided us, and she kind of gave us some insight into how race really correlates, especially when you're talking in the context of Baltimore, race correlates heavily with food justice. She, she put it in perspective for us. Yeah, she really did.
7: My name is Laura Flam, and I am the director of healthy eating and active living at the Baltimore City Health Department. So today we are honored, humbled, thrilled that we are hosting our third annual Food Justice Forum for the city.
6: Some of the main issues are regarding food and food justice in Baltimore right now. What do you want to see really be addressed currently?
7: One of the issues that I think Baltimore has done a really good job of raising awareness about is that our city, unfortunately, is very segregated. And those same lines where we see our racial and our economic segregation, those are the places that you have very high rates of diabetes and heart disease. You have your lowest life expectancies. And all of those things are related to food.
5: Uh, can we grab that map out of there? Because uh, you brought up the, uh, the segregation on the map, and I actually wanted to pull this up. Because this, this shocked me, to say the least. Could you maybe... Uh, Kind of walk us through uh, this map and kind of what we're looking at?
7: This map is one that shows a few things. So it's a map of the city of Baltimore, and there are little dots that represent people's race. So Baltimore, as we know, is primarily a black and white city. And so we have little green dots that represent African American people. We have little purple dots that represent white people. And then scattered around, we also have some other dots for people that are Asian, Native Hawaiian, or other Pacific Islander, other two or more races. Um, And what we see on this map also is those areas that are identified as food deserts, so areas where it's really hard to find healthy food. So looking at this map, The first thing I see is that our city is very segregated. So you see these very clear lines, like York Road, where one side is white and one side is black. And you see that the vast majority of those areas that are food deserts are those areas where black and brown people are living. And that really underscores to me the importance of having race be one of those things that is in the forefront of what you're thinking about when you're thinking about food access.
6: Stuff like this doesn't exactly accidentally happen. How has this happened in your mind to where there are clear delineations between race and food access in Baltimore?
7: One thing that we talk about in these community conversations is the history of redlining.
5: Redlining was a federal housing policy that started back in the 1930s and what it did was it reviewed mortgages based on neighborhood districts and practice is often turned into denying homeownership opportunities based on race and ethnicity.
7: And one thing that the facilitator in the session that I was in pointed out is if you look at the historic map of Baltimore and the communities that were going to be redlined, the connection between those communities and the areas that are food deserts now, it's, it's shocking, frankly, to look at how there were systems and policies in place that are still having these very real impacts today. And certainly it's not just one thing, it's not just federal policy. There's interpersonal um and individual decisions. So there are things we can do as individuals. But I, I would say one very clear uh thing that spurred this kind of disinvestment would be redlining.
5: Uh right as we were getting ready to leave, um we ran into this guy, Eric Jackson, who uh, or actually told us to talk to we caught him like just
6: as just as he was leaving just as he was walking out the door pulled him aside <laughs> he runs an organization or is a part of an organization called the Black, Black Yield Institute. Institute right so we talked to him really specifically about what he does through this organization as well as what food justice means specifically to him as well as his organization I
5: and mean, that was kind of the theme here is what what food justice meant to each individual.
6: Yeah, to each individual as well as to the mass organization that they're represented and what really needs to get done as soon as possible. What's the most pertinent issue in relation to food justice in Baltimore that they wanted to see today. get done?
8: Sure. My name is uh, Eric Jackson. Uh, my role here, not only as a participant, but was um, I was a moderator for a panel discussion that was uh, action-oriented. and. Um, You know, I just had an opportunity to connect with folks on that level. And also just to, at least my unofficial role in this uh, forum and at large, is to shift the political discourse from those uh, more liberal, you know, neoliberal concepts of food security food access into something that's a little more substantial like food sovereignty and for me particularly black food sovereignty Um, and elevating the conversation of justice to one of uh, intersectionality and human rights so in a real way so yeah that was my role
6: can you tell us about your organization black yield institute
8: Sure. So Black Hill Institute is um, a black-led institution, an emerging black-led institution in Baltimore City. And our uh, vision is black food sovereignty. We envision a strong, powerful, healthy black community uh, or community of black people, people of African descent that have uh, that control and govern the food environments that, where we live. Um, and do it in a way that's collective and that affirms African people. So that's the work that we're doing, and um, we intend in in forums like this to elevate that conversation, that in Baltimore City, a city that's 63% black, that black people should lead any effort um, towards social change or social transformation, but especially that uh, food, because everybody got to eat, and every black person needs to eat, and there's no reason why black folks are being fed by... Um, predominantly by other groups and by, um, from a class perspective, people, very wealthy, multinational uh, conglomerates that are not contributing to the economic development of the black community. So that's our goal, and uh, that's what we intend to do, and that's what we're doing.
5: After all the talking about food justice, it sort of left us with the question, what does food justice mean to you? And while you think that over, we'll let the answers that we
6: heard take us out. Could you just give us a quick, quick description of you personally, what food justice means to you and your organization?
8: Sure. Uh, food justice is um, a, a move, an approach to addressing uh, systemic food issues, and I would say elevating to food sovereignty, one that uh, builds power, that sees the issue from a human rights standpoint, um, and... Uh, it is the right of all people to have access to healthy, affordable, culturally appropriate food where they live, and that is, uh, you know, nu- of nutritional value. And like I said, from a sovereignty standpoint, um, that the people who eat good food and healthy food, they also benefit economically, politically, and socially, and spiritually from that food as well.
3: Okay. So, food justice to me is. Having the ability to have healthy food on a consistent basis, being able to have access to food that's um, culturally acceptable, um, healthy, and affordable. So being able to go out and purchase food or um, pick food easily and having food for your family.
8: Food justice to me is having healthy food options, having healthy, affordable food options in walkable neighborhoods where there's not a great disparity and difference between race, class, or gender we're, we're currently seeing here in Baltimore. So food justice is making it more equitable across race and class.
1: This episode of SoundBites is a production of the Baltimore Sound Society in collaboration with the Center for Emerging Media and the Mark Steiner Show. Today's episode was produced by Calvin Perry and Adam Droneberg. Our sound engineer is Dan Goodrich. Our senior producers are Shira Singlenberg and me, Megan McGrath. Special thanks to Eric Jackson, Crystal Foreman, and Dewan Patterson, along with Laura Flam and Bo Banwell of BaltiMarket. Thanks for listening.
0: The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineers, Andrea Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner.